In chapter 3, verse 1, please. Leviticus 3, verse 1. Hear the word of God. If his offering is a sacrifice of peace offering, if he offers an animal from the herd, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. And he shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and kill it at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall throw the blood against the sides of the altar. And from the sacrifice of the peace offering as a food offering to the Lord, he shall offer the fat covering the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails. And the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. Then Aaron's son shall burn it on the altar on top of the burnt offering, which is on the wood on the, on the fire. It is a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And then chapter 7 and verse 11. It's a wonderful sound, isn't it? Listen to that. Verse 11, this is the law of the sacrifice of peace offerings that one may offer to the Lord. If he offers it for a thanksgiving, then he shall offer with a thanksgiving offering unleavened loaves mixed with oil, unleavened wafers smeared with oil, and loaves of fine flour well mixed with oil. With the sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving, he shall bring his offering with loaves of leavened bread. And from it he shall offer one loaf from each offering as a gift to the Lord. It shall belong to the priest who throws the blood of the peace offerings. And the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving shall be eaten on the day of his offering. He shall not leave any of it until the morning. But if the sacrifice of his offering is a vow offering or a free will offering, it shall be eaten on the day that he offers his sacrifice. And on the next day, what remains of it shall be eaten. But what remains of the flesh of the sacrifice on the third day shall be burned up with fire. If any of the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offering is eaten on the third day, he who offers it shall not be accepted, neither shall it be credited to him. It is tainted, and he who eats of it shall bear his iniquity. And then verse 28. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever offers the sacrifice of his peace offering to the Lord shall bring his offering to the Lord from the sacrifice of his peace offerings. His own hand shall bring the Lord's food offerings. He shall bring the fat with the breast, that the breast may be waved as a wave offering before the Lord. The priest shall burn the fat on the altar, and the breast shall be for Aaron and his sons. And the right thigh you shall give to the priest as a contribution from the sacrifice of your peace offerings. Whoever among the sons of Aaron offers the blood of the peace offerings, and the fat shall have the right thigh for a portion. For the breast that is waved and the thigh that is contributed, I have taken from the people of Israel out of the sacrifices of their peace offerings and have given them to Aaron the priest and to his sons as a perpetual due from the people of Israel. This is the portion of Aaron and his sons from the Lord's food offerings from the day they were presented to serve as priests of the Lord. The Lord commanded this to be given them by the people of Israel from the day that he anointed them. It is a perpetual due throughout their generations. That's all. Now, this portion, these portions of Scripture which I read this morning, are not normative for us today. By that I mean, if you had been reading these or listening to them or instructed by them in the days of Moses, then your application would be to go make these sacrifices. But that isn't the case for us. That is, we don't listen to this and then go make these sacrifices. 
And you might ask, does that mean that God has changed? That this was what was normative at one point in time, but it isn't normative now? Does that, does that mean that God has changed? And, of course, the short answer to that question is no. God hasn't changed. But what we have here is the birth pangs, the beginnings of an understanding of what we call the history of redemption. If we begin with creation and then the sin of Adam and Eve, we find that, as we have revealed in the scripture, God's plan of saving his people from their sins. And God did that in the course of history, did that throughout history, and little by little reveals to us that plan, shows us that plan. And as we read in the Old Testament, what we're seeing are shadows and figures and forms of what really is to come. In fact, what we see here are pictures of Jesus. And thus, as we look back from him, we begin to understand more and more and more what Jesus did. Because here in these sacrifices, we see pictures really of him. Now, if you ask me the question, why did God do it this way, that is, why didn't he just begin with Jesus? Why didn't he just start right out there with him and bring Jesus right after the fall? And then everybody after that just simply have to believe in Jesus and then they would be saved. Why does he start this way with ancient Israel and then the sacrifices and all of that? And of course, the answer to that question is, I don't know. He just did. See, when I come to the scripture, I don't first come with the question, why? I first come with the question, what? Because truth isn't reasoned by us, but revealed to us. That doesn't mean it doesn't make sense. It certainly does. But we reason from the revelation, not to it. We reason from the truth that we've been given, which we could not have conceived of. We reason from it, not to it. And so all I can say is, in the history of redemption, as God reveals a redemption, he begins in the context of these sacrifices. When I get to Jesus, then I understand them backwards, and I go, oh yes, now, that's what that's about. That's what that means. But here we're seeing it piece by piece by piece. That's why it's very helpful to get that little phrase, the history of redemption, in your head. So that you realize that God's revelation of his redeeming of us works through history. Little by little we learn it, we see it in Jesus so completely, and then the consummation of it, even in his return. And so through these sacrifices, we will see the Lord Jesus, and learn, I think, uh, more completely what he has done. That's why we're doing this. Now, if you remember, uh, so far we've considered a burnt offering, a grain slash gift slash tribute offering to the Lord. And now, if you've been listening, this is a peace offering. Quick review. Remember, the question as we come to Leviticus is, how is it? I'm going to pause here. You should know the question. What's the question of Leviticus? I've done this now three weeks. The question of Leviticus is, how is it that God can live among an unholy people and we can live in his midst? Because the difficulty is because God is holy and we're not. How is it that he can live among us and on the one hand he not be defiled by us and we not be consumed by him? Because he's holy and we're not. So the question of Leviticus is how can that take place? How can God live among us? How can we live in his presence? It begins with 
explaining that through the context of these offerings, this burnt offering first. And remember, as, as the author of Leviticus, as Moses is telling us about these sacrifices, he's listing these out as, as offerings that individuals can bring on their own. But they're also made at various times. They're made on the Sabbath by the priest, on the monthly offering, the first of the month, the various uh, feasts and celebrations like the Feast of Tabernacles and Passover and so forth and so on. But it begins with this type of offering called the burnt offering. Do you remember that in order to live in the presence of God, one brings this burnt offering? And it's an unblemished animal. And it's unblemished because God is holy. And because we're not holy, God says, I will accept this unblemished animal as your substitute. And so the offerer puts his hand on the head of this unblemished animal, as if to say, this animal stands for me. And so God then receives that holy animal in place of that worshiper. And then you remember that the worshiper kills that animal and the blood is taken by the priest and is sprinkled on the altar as an atoning sacrifice. Because since God is holy and we are not, the wages of sin is death. Thus, rather than taking the worshiper's life, he takes the life of this unblemished animal in his place. So to live in the presence of God, I must be holy. To live in the presence of God, my sins must be atoned for. And then you remember in the burnt offering, this whole animal is consumed on the altar, consumed on the fire, except for the skins, but the whole animal is consumed. And it's as if to say that God requires our very lives to be completely consecrated to Him. So to live in God's presence, I must be holy. To live in God's presence, my sins must be atoned for. To live in God's presence, He must have my life. And then we look to Jesus. The unblemished one, the holy one for us. The atoning sacrifice for us. The perfect life for us, yes. Then the second offering, the grain offering. It was, it was in recognition of the fact that God owned everything, that everything belonged to him. And yet I, as the worshiper, I had all this grain. And yes, I had toiled and labored in the land, but still I knew that it all had come from God, that he was the author of everything, and he was the author of every good gift to me, and so here it was as my covenant God, and he would grant me this food, and so out of thanksgiving to him, as a gift to him, I would bring a portion of this and say, look, you've provided this for me, and thus I worship you, thank you for this. And you would bring it in the form of grain or fine flour. You would bring it in the form of unleavened loaves, whatever ever form. Here it is as a thanksgiving offering because God is worthy of all of that. And then we think in the context of our own lives, what we've been given because we belong to him, what we've been given through Christ, and we've been given life. And so you say, well, what should we bring to God? And we should bring him our very, our very lives. Well, that makes sense until I look at my own life and think, that's not much. In fact, now for two weeks, I've just been pondering this verse. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering, that were a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. We sang it last week. And I think, yes, that's right. The whole realm of nature isn't mine. All I have to give is my life, but is that really suitable to God? And then I think of Jesus. And I think of the very fact that his life for me, his life for mine, 
And his life is the perfect life, the worthy life. His life is worth it. And so I come to God in Christ, and so the gift of my life is even accepted by God. Now this week, this peace offering. Uh, the peace offering is, in Hebrew, um, the shalamim offering, which is very close to a word that we're very familiar with, the word shalom, which we translate what we understand to be peace. And Literally, it means wholeness or wellness, because when we talk about a relationship that's whole or that's well, it's a relationship in which there's peace between the two parties. And so, in essence, in bringing this peace offering, you're saying, there's peace here. A recognition of peace with God and perhaps even peace with others. But there's this recognition of wellness, of wholeness in this relationship uh, with God. And, 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 and as we've been reading about this offering, we realize it can be brought either in the context of thanksgiving. That is, that you realize that you have peace with God because he's answered your prayer and you're coming with this offering to give him thanks. Or it could be in the context of a vow that you've made. God, if you will do this, then I will worship you with this offering. And so you're bringing it in response to a vow that you've made. Or it could be even a free will offering where there's no particular answered prayer, no vow has been made. But, but still you recognize that you have peace with God and you want to celebrate that fact. So you're able to bring this peace offering before the Lord. And it looks a lot like a burnt offering. Because you bring, again, an unblemished animal. The difference is that it can be either male or female at this point. And you put your hand on the head of that animal. Again, this identification. And then you kill it. And then the priest takes the blood and he splatters it on the altar again. But the difference here is that this whole animal is not consumed. Only a part of it. Uh, I read the gory details about how the animals cut up and so forth. And the only part that first goes on the altar to be burned is the fat. The fat goes to the Lord. Now, I rather like that. can't look at my wife when I say this, but I rather like this because cause I figure I must be a great offering. Uh, you know, in fact, I had a donut between services, and I'm even a better offering now than I was then, I think. Oh, I'm so, so glad God likes the fact. I think that's really the cause of my election. I think the Lord looked down and said, oh, that's a plump one. That'll work. That's pretty good. Uh, he likes the fat. No more hobbits, so I'll just take this one. Um, but God takes the fat, the inside fat, all the fat. It belongs to the Lord. And it goes on the altar, interestingly, on top of the burnt offering. So it could be that this worshiper has already brought a burnt offering, or it simply could be the burnt offering that the priest made every morning and another one every night. And it would stay on the altar all day and all night, and, and you would put the fat of the peace offering on top of the burnt offering. Because peace always follows atonement. The burnt offering was for atonement. The peace offering was yes. There's peace. And then... The person bringing the offering, the worshiper, would have, with the priest, uh, cut this animal up. And he would take then the breast of this animal and he would bring it to the priest. And that breast would belong to the sons of Aaron, to the priests. And then the other piece that would belong to the priest would be the, the right thigh or the right shoulder of this animal. And that would go in particular to the priest officiating. 
But this breast part would be brought, and it would be a wave offering to the Lord. A tradition says that you would bring this offering, you would hold it out uh, before the priest, and the priest would face you, and he would put his hands underneath yours. And then he would take it, and he would move it then towards you, and then out to the priest. As if to say, this is mine, but I give it. And then to raise it before the Lord, to say, this belongs to you. But then to bring it down, because it would go to the priest. I don't know, but that's what we call the sign of the cross. I don't think we should make too much of that, but I just think that's an interesting way that the rabbis describe the tradition. But that piece, that breast piece, after the wave offering, would go to the priests. It wouldn't go on the altar. It would go to the priests that they would have it to eat. And then the right thigh portion would go to the priest as well. The rest of it would go to the worshiper. Now, if you noticed, as I read, you realize that if it's a thank offering as a peace offering, you had to eat it that day. If it is a vow offering as a peace offering or a free will offering as a peace offering, you could eat it that day and then eat the rest of it the next day. But I want you to think of this. That it couldn't last, the one offering couldn't last two days, the other one couldn't last three days. And if it's just God getting the fat, the priest getting these two pieces, there's a lot left over that has to be eaten in a day, maybe two. I mean, let's say you brought a cow as your peace offering. There's a lot of cow. What would you do if you only had one day, maybe at the most two, to eat it? Well, you would eat it, and you would bring your friends and your family, and all of you together would eat this animal so that in a day or two, that whole thing was consumed. And what would that show? That would show on the one hand there's peace with God, on the other hand there's peace with his priests, and on the third hand there's peace with you between all of these people that came to eat this offering with you because you would be sharing, you see, some common union together. Your common union with God at peace with him. And now your common union with the people around you. It would be in a sense a meal of communion. Because that, you see, is what you're doing. You're expressing peace. Peace with God. Peace with each other. And so you see, in order to live in the presence of God, in order for God to live among us, we must be holy. Since we're not holy, He accepts this burnt offering, this unblemished animal, before, uh, as, our, as us, as our very offering before Him. And then it is slain, so atonement is made for our sin. And then it's completely burned up to say that our lives would be consecrated before him if we're to live in his presence. And then we bring in this tribute, this, this gift offering, this grain offering to say, look at what you've provided for me. Thank you. You're worth everything. Deed my very lives. And now he's saying, if that is true, if you've come holy, if atonement has been made, if you're consecrated to me, if you come in thanksgiving of recognizing my worthiness, then there's peace. Peace always follows atonement, the fat on top of the burnt. And you see, all of that transpires, all of that takes place, all that's true for us now as we understand it in the Lord Jesus. Turn to Ephesians in chapter 2.
Ephesians in chapter 2. Let me begin reading with verse 11. Scripture reads like this. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We see that Christ is our peace. He's the very fulfillment of this offering. Notice in verse 14, for he himself is our peace. Notice too, we see in verse 15, it says, so making peace, that is, Christ made peace. In verse 17, he preached peace. After his resurrection, before the ascension, he came and preached peace. And his apostles after him to preach, preach peace. He did it, you'll notice, by the very sacrifice of his life. Notice, in verse 13, it said, it is by the blood of Christ. In verse 14, it says, it was in his flesh. In verse 16, the scripture says, it was through the cross. All in recognition of the sacrifice. You see, in a very real way, Jesus' sacrifice was not only a burnt offering, the unblemished for us, the atoning sacrifice for us, but it was also a peace offering. Because the end result of what he did was to bring peace, to make peace. For he is our Peace. And the reason he had to make this peace, of course, is because, naturally speaking, there's hostility. There's hostility between God and us and us and God. And there's hostility also among us. The hostility that God has concerning us is the result of our sin. The hostility that we have concerning God is the result of our sin. The hostility that we have among each other is the result of our sin as well. And so for this hostility to go away, sin needs to be dealt with in a radical kind of way. This hostility that God has from his perspective towards us, a result of our sin, we understand it to be because we've sinned against him. We've set ourselves up to be against him. In the Garden of Eden, the temptation for Adam and Eve was, you can be as God. God had said, you can't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is a review for you. You can't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God said, I'm the one who gets to define what is good and evil. Rather than, Adam and Eve came and said, no, we're going to eat. You've said it's bad to eat of the tree, good not to eat of the tree. We're going to say the opposite. 
We're going to set ourselves up as the definers of what's good and evil. And we're going to say it's good to eat of the tree. We're going to set ourselves up as God. That's a problem. It's a problem because now we've offended the creator of the universe. We've, cre- we've offended righteousness, which is to live to God's glory. And so then God has this case against us to judge us, to condemn us, that his wrath would be upon us. But you see, it also puts us in hostility towards God because now God's a threat for us. We want his job. We want to be God. We want to be the ones who define what good and evil is. We want to be the ones to to plot the course of our own lives. We don't want to trust him with that for fear that he won't have our best interest in mind because really what we want is what we want. And what if God doesn't want that for us? And so you see then God all of a sudden becomes a threat to us that if his kingdom comes, it'll really mess up our kingdom. And then you see, that's a problem between us. Because if you have all these little gods running around, then there's going to be a war of all these false gods. I won't be able to trust you. Because how do I know if you have my best interest in mind? In fact, if you're like me, you don't have my best interest in mind. You have your own best interest in mind. So how can I trust you? And that, you see, then breeds insecurity in the context of our relationships. Because then I begin to think, well, I want you to do unto me what I want you to do unto me. That's our really golden rule, isn't it? And I don't know if you will. And so, I'm insecure around you. I can't trust your love for me. Because I know if you're like me, you're self-centered. You're selfish. And you'll think about yourself and not about me, so I can't really trust you, so we're insecure. Uh, We learn to be controlling, manipulative, even abusive. Because if the only way I can get you to do for me what I want you to do for me is to control, I will. To manipulate, I will, even if it results in abuse. We find ourselves, too, envying one another, being jealous of one another, being covetous of one another. Because if you have what I want and I don't have it, not only do I want it, but you're bad. Because that should be mine. So much so that I might even steal it from you or go to war with you in order, in order to get it. You see how this self-centeredness, this self-interest, this self-fishness results in hostility uh, between us, I, I learned to gossip and slander and use malicious talk because, you see, if I can take what's true about you or might be true about you and put a negative spin on it in some way, that makes me look better and makes me one up on you. It can make me be a hypocrite in our relationship and insincere in our relationship and wear a mask in our relationship because I have this certain fear, you see, that if you really knew me, then you might realize that you are better than I am. Worse yet, I might even realize that you're better than I am. So I can't really let you know me. You might take advantage of that. I find my temper and my anger and my even malice against you growing, perhaps even to the point of murder. Because you might stand in my way. I can't trust you. 
You see the hostility that sin breeds because if I want to be God and you want to be God, there's a problem. But the scripture says that Jesus comes and he is our peace. The illustration that the Apostle Paul uses is this great hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles. And there was great hostility between Jews and Gentiles. In fact, it began with God. Because he's the one who chose Abraham first. And he's the one then who decided that he would give his covenants of promise to the Israelites. And he said, you're going to be the, the, the people of my promise. My covenant people. But you see, then sin turned all that. Rather than the Israelites understanding them to be themselves to be a light to the Gentiles, they said, look what we have. You don't have it. And what we have is God. And he belongs to us. And we're going to keep you out. And the Gentiles looked at that, and rather than being attracted to that, and saying, oh, they have God, let's join them. They said, well, we're not going to join you, because you have God and we don't. So we're going to make one up ourselves, who's better than your God. In fact, even in the temple, there was a wall that separated Jews and Gentiles. And Paul would have understood that as he writing to the church at Ephesus. Because in the temple that was in that day, you had the holy place and the most holy place, and then you had the court of the priests, and then you had the court of the Israelites to the men of Israel, then you had the court of the women, and then you had some stairs that went down. And then you had a wall. And beyond that wall was the court of the Gentiles. And on that wall was a sign that says, you can't trespass, you can't go beyond this wall. If you do, you'll die. But the Apostle says that Jesus is our peace. He's the one who broke that dividing wall. And quite frankly, every other dividing wall. And notice how he did it. In verse 15, he says, He did it by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So, making peace. He, he broke down that wall by abolishing, meaning, by nullifying the commandments and ordinances. Now, how did he do that? Well, first he did that in the sense that Jesus fulfilled all the ceremonial laws and ordinances of Old Testament Israel. All these sacrifices Jesus did, Jesus fulfilled. He was the fulfillment of all that. So there was no longer any difference between Jew and Gentile at that point. Because Jesus had fulfilled them. So if you come in him, you come. You don't have to be a Jew to come. You don't have to be a Gentile to come. You can be either and come because you come in Jesus. And then, of course, he broke down the hostility between us and God because he took the penalty that was implicit in all of those commandments that if you disobey, then you will die. Jesus took that. And then he also, on the cross, destroyed our pride. Because, you see, when he died and we identify with his death, we say, I deserve that. Like I was thinking just the other day. Actually, it was just this morning at about quarter after five. And I was thinking, me on my best day without God, what would that be like? No matter how hard and how much I tried to forgive and how forgiving I was, no matter how kind I was, no matter how patient I was, uh, no matter how nice I was, no matter how loving I was, me on my best day without God simply would merit hell. Merit his condemnation. That's a, that's a sobering thought. But you see, when I identify with Jesus, it, it, it just destroys my own pride and my own self-centeredness. Because once I admit that, I can't put myself over and above anybody else. And once you admit it to me, there's no way you can put yourself over and above anyone else either. Because I've got to come to God 
through him. An unblemished one, unblemished. An atoning sacrifice for my sins. One whose life has been consecrated. One who brings peace. Jesus. Now the implications of this for us are many. One of which that God has given to us a meal as well. And you remember on the night that he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus sat with his disciples and celebrated Passover. We call it communion. For it was there that he celebrated his common union. And I wonder if during that time, if the disciples of Jesus didn't think back to a time a year or so before when Jesus had spoken about his body and about eating and drinking and about bread and about, about wine. Turn to John chapter 6 and verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So Jesus is setting this up. He said, I am the bread of life. Now, of course, we knew that he wasn't bread. I mean, he was Jesus. He was a human being. But he's using this metaphor, this image, this figure of speech. I am the bread of life. Verse 36. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. You see, the point of all of this is belief. Verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me... I will never cast out, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on that last day. And so he's saying, if you want to be raised up on the last day, if you want to have eternal life, then the way to do that is to believe in me. That's his point. And then verse 53, Jesus says, So Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you've no life in you. Jesus is connecting some dots here. He's saying, if you believe in me, you have life. And what belief means is that you eat of me. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. He's saying, he's saying belief, you see, is, is eating of me. Eating of me is belief. How do we eat of Jesus? How do we drink his blood? How do we eat his flesh? We believe. It's that very belief that gives us eternal life. It's that very belief that raises us on the last day. Verse 55. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not as the Father has ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And you ask, how can we eat? bread of Jesus and drink of his blood and Jesus would say believe if you believe you have eternal life if you believe I will raise you up on that last day and so there they were with Jesus on the night that he was betrayed and he took bread 
And he said, this is my body which is given for you. These men would look at that bread and they would say, that's bread. Jesus, you're right, it's bread. Perhaps you might remember when I said, if you eat of me, you will live. And what I was referring to was faith that you would believe. They say, oh yes. You're giving your life that if I believe in you, then I will live. And in the same way, he took the cup. And this cup he gave as well. He said, this cup is the new covenant. In my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins, do this in remembrance of me. And they would look at this cup and they would look in wine. They were Presbyterians. They would think, that's grape juice. They were soon to become Presbyterians, by the way. Um, so this is my blood. And they said, well, remember, you're talking about drinking your blood. What does that mean? It means if you believe in me, then you have life. And I will raise you up on the last day. Because, you see, the very work of Christ is to bring peace. And as we believe in him, what that says is that, oh, I understand now. My the hostility that God had towards me is no longer because my sins have been atoned for and there is peace with God. And I also understand then, in relationship with others, as I come to this table, I not only celebrate my common union with God, thus peace, but my common union with others as well. Because Jesus is that peace offering. And that peace offering not only signified peace with God, but it signified peace with others. It was not only a meal with God, it was a meal with the community it was a meal with others, and so we celebrate our common union in this. And so you see, as you come to this table, this table of the Lord, this table of the one who has made peace, first and foremost, you're saying this. You're saying, as I come, I recognize the fact that there was at one time hostility between me and God. And rightfully so, at least from God's perspective. Because from God's perspective, I had sinned against him, and justice and his wrath was against me. But now I realize, because of Jesus, there is no longer this hostility. I believe in him, that Jesus took the penalty for my sin. There's no case against me any longer, that all my sins are forgiven. In fact, if you come to this table this morning, what you're announcing to everyone here is... That you understand your sin, you understand its deserts, and you understand that you've been forgiven because of Jesus. In fact, as you come this morning and you look around and you realize that there are people sitting here who know your sin, in your coming, you're saying, I've confessed my sin before God. Jesus has atoned for that, and I'm forgiven. So you needn't hide your face, you see. Not from the likes of us. Because we're coming too. And you see, as we're coming, we're saying the same things. You know those sins you know about me? When you saw me here, heard me there, observed this, I confess that to you. All of those, when I come, I recognize that those are sins before God and I deserve his condemnation. But I believe in Jesus and his blood is atoned for my sin. He's made peace for me. So as I come, I'm not hiding my face I'm coming before God and with you. We're celebrating our common union. You see. But also when you come. 
You're saying, if you've hurt me, I forgive you. And you're saying, if I've hurt you, please forgive me. In fact, I won't leave it just like that. If I've hurt you, and I know it, I'll go to you after. But I'll come to you in humility. But if you come to this table too, I'm going to come with confidence. Because I know I don't need to be afraid any longer of you and what you might do or think. Because since you've come to the table too, I know you'll forgive me. Because he's made peace. In fact, it's my heart's desire never again to be jealous of you. It's my heart's desire never again to be envious of you. It's my heart's desire never to be unkind. It's my heart's desire never to be unforgiving. It's my heart's desire to always be gentle because I want to maintain the peace that, that He's made. So, you see, when we come to this table, our pride is broken. Our self-centeredness is gone. His life for ours. We're all on the same page, all in the same place. At peace. That goes for children and parents, siblings, husbands and wives, grandparents, the believing community. For the scripture says that he took two and made one fellow citizens, same kingdom. Access through the Spirit to one Father, the household of God, one Father, one family, being built one upon the other into one temple where God will dwell. Where does God dwell? He dwells among a people who come in the holiness of His Son. He dwells among a people who comes in the atoning sacrifice of His Son. He dwells among a people who come in the gift of His Son. And all that registers peace with Him. And He dwells among the people at peace with each other. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, Oh God, thank You uh, for the Lord Jesus. I pray for us even now. I don't know what's going through everybody else's mind. I only know what's going through mine and I'm only partially aware of that, I suppose. God, I thank you for forgiving my sin, our sins. I thank you for making peace with you. I thank you. And even though we've hurt each other, I'm sure in various ways, still at this moment we realize we're forgiven by you and by each other. So I pray that you would Take this bread and this juice. You'd use it in such a way to remind us of all that, that we would know that Jesus has made peace and that we would dwell among each other with confidence and love. Trust, security. To love each other and that we would live in the freedom of knowing that we have peace with you. So take this bread, I pray, this juice as well. Set it apart to that end. In Jesus' name.
Amen. I remind you that this table is not the table of Grace Evangelical Presbyterian Church, but it's the table of the Lord, and He invites to it all those who really do understand themselves to be sinners in His sight without hope, except in His sovereign mercy, meaning you understand all that I've been saying about the hostility between you and God. And now you realize this, and, and, and you realize that Jesus has paid for that, and you believe in Him, so now you come to feed upon Him. Because you receive and depend upon Him alone as He's offered to us in the Gospel. But not only that, that you now desire to live as becomes a follower of Christ. Which means not only to live forgiven and in peace with God, but forgiven by each other and in peace with each other. Isn't that wonderful? I invite these two aisles, the sections that come down this aisle to my left, these two sections down the aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and know that Jesus is our peace. Please come.